0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. In this episode, I chat with the fabulous Dr. Vanessa Lapointe. Dr. Vanessa is a mum of two growing boys, registered psychologist, parenting educator and international speaker. Dr. Vanessa has a passion for walking alongside parents, teachers and other caregivers to really see the world through children's eyes. She believes that if we can do this, we are beautifully positioned to help our young people to thrive. Dr Vanessa is a best-selling author of two books, Parenting Right from the Start and Discipline Without Damage. In this conversation, we discuss the impact of lockdown and remote learning on our young people, all the feelings and behaviours that come at back-to-school time, what separation anxiety is, how to help our young people when they're feeling dysregulated and out of sorts, the stories we tell ourselves and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Vanessa Lapointe. Dr. Vanessa, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Thank you. I am so thrilled to be here with you. I
0: have been really looking forward to this conversation because as we enter a new school year, I was sitting down to look at when the last time students were in a classroom for a full term. And by what I thought of this morning... For our year twos, they have never had a full term in your school. Our year nines this year, the last time they had a full term at school was year six, so the end of primary school. And for our year twelves, our senior students, the last time they had a full term at school was year nine. You know, that's really significant as far as their development and as far as what's going on for them this school year. I wondered if we could get from you, what's happening generally at different stages of our children's development?
1: I love this question, especially in the context of the broader situation that's playing out with kids transitioning and they've not, you know, had these normal school years and everything's been a little bit topsy-turvy. And the reason that I love the question is because it's actually going to shine a light on why there might be a silver lining in all of this for our children. So when we think about very young children, and I'm going to cast this in the understanding of something that I'll refer to as individuation, very young children are really in the process of landing on the concept that they are their own person. And so until you're about two years old, you actually think you're the same person as your parent. When you're two, and we all know that stage because we refer to it as the terrible twos, because kids come out with all of this independence and they're like yeah i'm going to do this myself i'm going to dress myself me do self and the other word that they really like is no and we're like what is even happening but that's how they become their own person is they really begin to kind of step into ownership of who it is that they are that stepping in of ownership increases very gradually over the next oh let's say 18 to 25 years and so What we have observed country by country by country when we look at children's development is that there is actually a very significant advantage when it comes to both emotional and cognitive development to having children be held out of, back from, away from significant peer interactions in large groups. So when we start children Early in school, as we do in my country, Canada, and in many other countries worldwide, it's, kids usually are starting like full-day school somewhere around age four or age five. We actually, in the developmental literature, understands that we're doing those kids a disservice. So the good news is that because kids have had these wild up-and-down COVID years, especially if they're younger children, that may, in the longer term, play to their advantage. The short-term impact of that is more likely to be that there will not have been as much skill acquisition, keeping in mind that skill acquisition is decidedly different from cognitive development. Most people can learn skills, but learning to think is an entirely different thing. And of course, that will be linked to the kind of home environment that the child was being marinated in whilst they weren't attending school. So there's, you know, a lot of crossover and other things to understand. As we trip uh, through the years on into adolescence, what's happening for our adolescents is they are taking increasingly larger steps away from their primary care providers out into the world. So developmentally, what they are meant to do is to find themselves more so in the presence of what I'll refer to as mentors. My good friend and colleague, Maggie Dent, often talks about them as lighthouses, where they are people out in community. They might be sports coaches, they might be band instructors, they might be teachers. So adults out in the world that become uh, mentors to our adolescents and begin to um, shepherd them out into their adult selves. And if you look at how different societies in generation upon generation upon a generation past have organized themselves. You will always see that the adolescents are essentially taken out of their home environments and put into the vortex of the community or the village to be mentored by people other than their parents. So, that gives you a bit of an understanding now that the impact on our adolescents has probably been more significant than the impact on our young children. Because our adolescents have had their wings clipped by COVID in a way that works against them, whilst for our young children that has worked for them. And that's why we're seeing um, such significant surges in mental health issues and other kinds of challenges for our adolescents because their development in a sense has been in some ways shut down. And so we can be thinking about that as we see kids transitioning back into their school classrooms. And also, I think in Australia, you call them your year 12s, as we see them transitioning out of year 12 and on into the post-secondary years, um, that there will be a little bit of Perhaps pushback, a little bit of you know, rapid catching up that may go a little off the rails as they try to you know make up for lost time because they've they've had that experience of being shut down developmentally and it's a really challenging thing to shut down development. Development is a force to be reckoned with and it will find a way through, come hell or high water.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am laughing because earlier you said about. When someone is two years of age, they get that real sense of independence and mind. And, and I can tell you my two-year-old at the moment is a force to be reckoned with in the mind. Why oh, bad? Like there is no way I can shift him in any way. And then to think about that surge but in adolescence in a way that's probably right. not always as present because they have learnt different ways to manage But it's still there. They have this yearning to be out in the world, to experience different things, to be away from their parents and away from their teacher's eyes and doing things. And they haven't had as many opportunities in the last few years. So as we start this new school year, what are some things that are probably going to pop up? What do you start to see in new school years and transitions?
1: Well, there can be a number of different things. And so we know universally as human beings, especially for children, they need connection, relationship, attachment uh, more than they need anything else. And so there can be some hiccups to be navigated as you transition, particularly your young children, but sometimes it impacts adolescents as well, back into the classroom where they're going to be away from you for long stretches of time. And you might think that that would manifest in kids as like, they'd just be so happy to see you at the end of the day. And they'll be just like, you know, angelic little cherubs in the evening, because they'll just be so grateful to be home with you. And that is not at all how it goes down. Usually how that shows up is in an uptick in challenging behaviors, uh, behavior being their primary mode of communication. It's it's really difficult for young children, but also for for our teens to talk about the big things. And so they just get, uh, they get crotchety and finicky and challenging and reactive their fuses short there's bigger meltdowns maybe before school maybe right after school when you pick them up um and so to be just mindful of that to create a lot of space for it and actually almost to invite it you're really upset it looks like you're really frustrated your yells and your shouts are fine with me i've got you and i got me and we're good let it all out whatever you need to do so that we're not shutting our kids down Um, In the longer term, you would want to watch for a few things that might signal that the transition has got a bit off the rails. And generally speaking, we want to look first at the physical systems in the body, things like sleep, things like eating, and things like bathroom stuff. So peeing and pooping. And if anything really changes in those realms... Uh, you see kids are having accidents when they weren't doing that before or whatever, then that's a really great sign to you that the body is in alarm. This has been a lot for this child to handle. And you'd want to know about that so that you could really swiftly step in and begin to um, caretake of them a little bit more around that. The other thing that you want to watch for is any other kind of behavior that appears to be developmentally regressive. And so if you're six-year-old starts to kind of walk and talk and look and act more like a two or three-year-old. Or if you've got, you know, maybe you've got a 14-year-old who's like having tantrums like a four-year-old and you're like, what is up? These are all signs that this has sort of started to settle in, that the alarm system is very alive in this child's body. And they are communicating that both physically and emotionally
0: what you're giving us is a way to observe our children and our students and get really quite curious about what is going on for them and those beautiful signs of sleep and movement and behaviour and maybe like big, big behaviour and also withdrawing behaviour. Like I know the students that I've worked with It can present in a whole variety of ways. I remember one student that I worked with, when she was really stressed, she'd be reading a book. She would run to read a book. And then another student was not reading a book, would be throwing a book. So it's really interesting how it can present in different ways. (laughs) Are you
1: reading the book or throwing it? (laughs) We call them actor outers. Those are the book throwers or actor inners, which would be the book readers or substitute any other behavior that's more inward as opposed to outward. Thank you. That's really good.
0: Oh, it's so fascinating to really think about it. And a topic that I know that lots of families and schools are really working through at the moment. It's this idea of separation anxiety. So I was wondering if you could give us an idea of what is separation anxiety?
1: So we are a social species by design. It means that we're meant to be in closeness with each other. And particularly through the months of lockdown and other COVID restrictions, the beautiful thing about that is that children have had a lot of time with their families and their parents. And that's actually on the whole, very good for children. However, it does make the idea of now being away from our families and our parents for long stretches of time, kind of daunting. And maybe for some of our more sensitive and intense children, quite overwhelming. And so separation anxiety by definition from a diagnostic perspective is when you have a very significant fear that something bad is going to happen to you and or to your loved one, your caregiver, your parent uh, during the time that you are separated. In order for it to be a diagnosed thing, it needs to last about four months and it needs to involve, you know, a variety of other features. Um, It often involves sleep disruptions, although not always, and typically involves a lot of distress upon separation. So that would be the diagnostic uh, definition of separation anxiety. Having said that, we all have separation anxiety on some level or another, depending on temperament and what else we've got going on in life and that kind of thing. And so you can anticipate that your children will be kind of alerted to the idea that they are separating from you at school drop-off um, or what have you. And in that alerted mode, you might see some resistance to the separation unfold. So that would be a child who's clinging, who's engaging in what we call attachment-seeking behaviors, clinging, crying, otherwise uh, being behaviorally dysregulated because they want to be with you. They don't want you to leave. And it might also mean that when you pick them up, the downstream fallout, frustration, anxiety is you think that they're going to be all thrilled to see you. And they actually get very reactive upon seeing you because it reminds them of the fact that you've been gone all day. And so you can be expecting these warm, fuzzy hugs and you get like a fist in the face. Happened to me.
0: (laughs) Oh, you know, I've never actually thought about the idea and potentially the intensity for an adult or a child to feel like there's a fear that something bad is going to happen. That would be quite terrible to think that there's a genuine fear that someone may not come back or something would happen. I never thought of it like that.
1: Yeah. And that's sort of the overarching issue is that we find safety and security in the nest of our relationships and so when we're outside of that nest we feel unsafe especially when we're um, young children and or kids who've just navigated a lot of different stuff which would be the case for you know basically all of our kids who have lived through a pandemic and everything that's come with that it's been a challenging time
0: oh it's so challenging and what's coming to mind for me is it may be something that presents at different stages of our lives, depending on what's happening. If you've had a real tragedy at home, that may pop up because the fear of having someone at home and you're at school, it's something that can pop up at different times. It's not maybe something, oh, I dealt with that at daycare. We don't have to deal with it again. Yes,
1: yeah, different times based on life situations and circumstances and histories and all that's um, happened. And also, depending on... You know that certain situation. I know for my children, when they had landed in a school year where they had a really connected, wise, intuitive kind of teacher, that that would be a different kind of school year than the school years where they had the more abrupt kind of strict teachers where they tended to be sort of more dysregulated by that. And so you can feel very different as you're moving through those spaces and moving through that experience of separation based on other kinds of situational setting events
0: oh that makes so much sense so for a young person that is feeling fearful they're feeling this what's really happening in their bodies
1: when you say young person what age group are we talking about
0: well can we do maybe a variety so a young like a preschool and then an adolescent how it could be happening in their body
1: yeah. And so the younger the child is, the more likely it is to go into the body rather than um, eventually it moves from the body into behavior and then from behavior into like voicing our thoughts about that. So very young children, if you're seeing it move into the body, that's going to be disruptions to those physical things that we talked about sleep, eating, pooping, peeing, because kids have no other way to really express that. We also see that some kids will, you know, have eczema starting or eczema, some people pronounce it, um, where, where you're really just seeing stress coming out in the body and taking its toll. I have worked with children that are, you know, as you get into the the sort of three, four, five-year-old range, you're starting to see it come out more behaviorally. And they also have all of the physical symptoms that come with anxiety. And I remember working once with a boy who was four years old, who had already been through the gamut of, um, you know, specialists, including a pediatric cardiologist, because they thought that he had really severe heart problems. And it turned out what was happening is that his anxiety around being away from his parents had morphed into panic attacks. And it was like the elephant standing on his chest as he tried to catch his breath, but he had no way to put that into words. And so he had these really intense physical symptoms, but because his vocabulary and even just his understanding of like himself and uh, what's normal and not normal um, wasn't developed enough yet for him to be able to voice it. And so you'll see more around the behaviors and things that just leave you scratching your head, like what is going on with this kid? And then as they get into those, you know, preteen and adolescent years, you can see it come out more um, using language. And while you would think kids at that age are going to be quite adept at expressing themselves verbally and letting you know that they're feeling anxious, that's not how it goes. Uh, goes down. What it looks like is they're irritable. They are largely unlikable. Even if you love them, you'll find yourself being like, "I like I gave you life, and this is how you talk to me." So you'll just you'll just be like, "What? Like what's happened to my kid?" I'm like, Ugh, enough of this. And so if you find that you're, you know, getting a lot of that from your kid, you, you might interpret that as like, they're going through something and it's time. I loved a little earlier how you use that word curious. It's time to get curious about what it is that's going on underneath the surface rather than being reactive or taking it personally as an attack on us that we can reconceptualize that as they're actually asking for our help just in a curious kind of way.
0: (laughs) And I think that's a really beautiful point to bring up, that challenging behaviour, the behaviour that probably parts of us wants to shut down or change, that is the invitation for a conversation or some kind of connection. You know, to be able to flip that script is so powerful and that's why I'm really curious to know, Vanessa, The adults that surround young people, so it can be teachers, can be parents, grandparents, what's happening for them when they're witnessing or being with a young person that's in distress?
1: That's so important to take stock of because the human brain is the only part of us that can be 100% regulated by someone or something outside of us. And so as adults who are in a hierarchical relationship with the children that we are caring for, regardless of the context or environment in which we're caring for them, we are the ones in the lead. So the children are looking up to us in order to have us lead them through these challenging times or this particular challenging moment, which means that we are co-regulating that child. From the outside. You can literally think about your brain and there being a bridge built over to the brain of that child. And whatever's going on inside of your brain is going to end up inside the brain of that child. So if you're like, what the bleepity bleep bleep bleep, even if you're not saying that out loud, like that's your inside voice and your inside thoughts, the brain bridge is going to transmit that to that child and they're going to be dysregulated simply because of your presence and the fact that you internally are dysregulated. Now, this is a brilliant time to land on the idea that everything is a story. And I mean, everything is a story. And if you don't like the story that you're living in that moment, or more broadly speaking, you can just rewrite it. She says, using air quotes, because just rewriting it is not for the faint of heart. I'll give you an example. My partner and I several years ago, were where I live, there's a ferry that travels back and forth between the mainland and the uh, Vancouver Island. And we were on the ferry, it's about an hour and a half, two hour trip. And there <laughs> we were, I don't know why two child development specialists ends up seated near the children's play area on the, ther- on the ferry. And there's a little guy on that ferry. He's probably three or four years old and he is having a go of it. The meltdown is probably an hour and a half long and you can just hear him. Like he's just done. He's completely flipped his lid. He's living down in his limbic system and there's just no way out. And you can hear the increasing exasperation in his mother's voice. And oh, don't you just have giant heart for her? Because that's so hard, especially in such a public and contained space to have this kid in this prolonged meltdown. And the things that he was saying, the little boy, are, were just so incredible. They were things like, you don't see me. And we were like, oh, he's so wise. Like what three-year-old on the earth knows how to say that kind of a thing in this sort of a moment. And so David and I sat the whole fairy ride just like enchanted by this little boy who's having like the mother of all meltdowns for an hour and a half. And we think he is like literally the wisest, most intuitive, smartest little child that has ever walked the face of the planet. Now I can almost a hundred percent guarantee This was not his mother's story in that moment. And my heart is with that mother. This is no judgment on her at all. But I tell you the story in order to really shine a light on the idea that it is about our internal narrative about what's happening on the outside of us. Through the course of COVID, have you been stuck at home or have you been safe at home? Do our children now have to go back to the classroom and have to have all these long days away from us? Or do our children now get to try on science? what it feels like to go and have like kind of a normal school year? So you can hear the difference in the languaging and the difference in the story that would then sit underneath that language. All of that as a long-winded response to go back to the initial question, which was what's happening for the adults in the presence of the child who is distressed. So we really do, as co-regulators for children, need to check in with ourselves. What story are you telling yourself right now about this situation? What story are you telling yourself about your role in this situation? Do you feel like you've failed this child? Do you feel like you should have done a better job? Do you feel like you dropped the ball? If you have self-judgment in that situation, you will be more dysregulated and that will transmit to the child. And more than that, what are you saying in terms of judgment about the child? This kid needs to pull it together. Yeah, life is tough, sunshine. Suck it up because it's time to giddy up and go-go or whatever it is. So check in with the stories that you're telling yourself about you in that moment and also the stories that you're telling yourself about that child in that moment. And you have got to want peace more than crazy. And you can be right or you can be happy. So choose your stories accordingly. Co-regulate from the outside from that kind of a headspace but also heart space with stories that are working for you and the child rather than against.
0: Oh that is so powerful to think about the stories that we're telling ourselves about students, children, and also ourselves as a teacher, if we're the story maybe that, oh, they don't like me or I should be doing something different or they're just hard work or the parents saying the story about, oh, maybe I shouldn't have brought them to this school. Maybe it was the wrong school. Maybe it was the wrong this. Maybe I should have stayed home longer. Maybe like all of these things that can come up for us that they're having a subtle impact or maybe a significant impact on that moment. These stories that we're saying and then I'm really curious to think about Now we're back in schools, there's also that social element of being on show in front of other parents and other teachers. So does that play a role too, that level of potentially embarrassment or maybe I'm not on top of it or all of those things? Does that come up?
1: I think it's a huge kind of thing because we are socialized from very young ages to learn that the approval of others is really important to our well-being When we can secure the approval of others, then we uh, make ourselves worthy of love, attention, you know, all of those good kinds of things. And so we are for sure, even if you swear up and down, no, I'm not affected by those kinds of things. You're a human being. Therefore, you're affected by those kinds of things. And so it's a big deal. Performance is a huge thing for us as grownups and you can feel it. You know, I remember when my boys were younger and would have those public kinds of meltdowns and you can feel the heat from inside. If you like rise up and spill out your face as you become embarrassed and ashamed and overwhelmed. And when we are in that kind of a state, we actually tend to become regressed ourselves. And so it's obviously an overreaction because, you know, five people away, you've got David and I sitting on the ferry thinking you are the cutest thing that has ever walked the face of the earth. So it's an overreaction and all overreaction signifies age regression, which means that in those moments when we, when we're feeling that sort of swell of embarrassment or whatever it is, we actually turn into five-year-olds. And then we tend not to make great choices in terms of what we say to our children and what we say to the people around us and how we navigate the situation. And so, I, you know, it's, a, it's easier said than done and certainly not for the faint of heart. But I always extend an invitation both to myself and also to the parents that I work with to remember we're not here in the service of those other parents, of those other adults, that teacher, whoever it is. We're not here in the service of any of those people. They're all grownups and adults and they can figure it out for themselves. We are here in the service of that child who is counting on us to show up in a way that helps rather than hurts.
0: That is so important to think about. And earlier you said, I've got you and I've got me. That line was just beautiful. Like, I've got you. I'm with you. And almost putting the blinkers on, just like you and me, we're in connection here. Everybody else can just go and fade off into the background and it's you and me and I've got you. And I think that is such a beautiful thing to think about. And it's probably a skill for us adults and us big-hearted adults that are wanting to perform to be able to block that out and just be with that young person and regulate Mm -hmm. that young person. Mm
1: -hmm. I think saying that it's a skill is So bang on because it's not something that we come by terribly naturally. It's something that we have to be very aware of and very conscious of, and to really practice that. And I know for myself, when I began to get better at that, I noticed that rather than being the actor in my own life, I became the observer of my own life. So it's almost like you've got this third eyeball (laughs) that sits out over top of you and it's kind of like, oh, check it. Oh, look at that. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what's happening now where you can observe it and be kind of informed by that, that other perspective, that external view of things rather than being so locked in it that you can't actually see your way through it. So to think about yourselves in those moments when things are getting real cray, that you become an observer of the situation rather than an actor in it.
0: (laughs) I'm laughing because my third eyeball is Dr. Vanessa because a few times (laughs) I've sent you a video of the boys doing all kinds of things and you're like, yeah, right on point. Like that is developmentally appropriate. That is so good. And then I'm thinking- Your
1: boys are going to rule the world one day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking, this is great. And then another person would say, You let them do that. You let them get away with that. (laughs) I didn't let them. It's just they're doing their thing and working through that and understanding that. And I think there's just so much beauty in developing this skill or the third eye to observe. I'm thinking of parents, just observe yourself when you're walking into the school grounds. What's popping up for you? Is there a story there Mm -hmm. about coming to school and back to school for you? and maybe there's an invitation there to sometimes i love how you always talk about raising ourselves so we can raise our young people because maybe there is a layer there of your own school experience can that have a you know impact as well
1: i'm laughing because oh it can it's so deeply enmeshed in the way that we experience our children attending school and what may shock many of your listeners is that i am actually a high school dropout True story. I quit school in grade 10. Um, There was a lot going on in my family. My parents had separated and I was, I think, probably clinically depressed. And I had always been a competitive athlete. I was a figure skater at a very high level. And because of my parents' marriage breaking down, there was an issue with money. And so I had to quit skating. And it all happened in about a four-month window. And my world just fell to pieces. And I quit school. And I remember the experience of feeling like being at school was just so overwhelming and way too much for me to handle. And I just couldn't do it. And so I crawled into bed for about six months. And it has been interesting for me to observe my reactions to my children's expressed overwhelm with school. Even when they were younger, they're fourteen and seventeen now, I would become quite agitated if i if I was getting the impression from them that school had become too much for them. And of course, the issue has nothing to do with them. <laughs> it has to do with that that is triggering inside of me my own reactivity to my own experiences during quite formative developmental stages of school being a really hard place to be. And so for sure, our experiences are going to follow us forward into adulthood and will impact the way we then experience our children's experiences at school or otherwise.
0: Oh, Thank you so much for sharing that because I'm sure a lot of people listening like, oh, yes. Now, come to think about it, my school experience is X, Y, Z. And even teachers, teachers have their own stories around the school experience mm-hmm. and how they need to show up and all of these things. So if people are really feeling this back-to-school feels, there's a lots of intensity around the separation, big behaviours, how can we start to find... Some way to anchor ourselves in this wavy time?
1: I think a few things. So, the first thing is to understand that this is going to require us to dip into some of our coping reserves. And with that in mind, as we're dipping into those coping reserves, we're going to need to be taking time to replenish the reserves. And so, I would be very mindful. Uh, of how you plan sort of those last couple of weeks leading up to school start, and certainly how you plan life for your children and your family in those first few weeks of back to school. This is not the time to jump into six different extracurricular activities and schedule yourselves um, from sunup to sundown. This is the time to actually take the volume on life and turn it way down especially if you and or your child happen to be a more intense, more sensitive, what I often talk about is orchid kind of human being. You'll want to have your evenings be very low key. You'll want to have your, your weekends be very low key, maybe an activity here or there, lots of connected family time, lots of rest, really um, good focus on things like routine, consistency, connectedness, Togetherness, those kinds of things. We want for life to be as smooth sailing as possible during that sort of six to eight week span, um, traversing both kind of that period before school and then as we transition into the new school year. So everybody's just we're we're navigating this whole thing and we're taking a lot of big old deep breaths while we're doing it. The other big piece is to understand that the answer. Whenever our children or ourselves are facing separation or disconnection in terms of relational um, time together, the answer to that is going to be connection. So how do you build in more of it? You can be with your children at school, even if you're not with them. You can be in their hearts. You can be in their minds. There's so much children's literature focused on exactly that concept because it's such a core part of who we are as humans and what it is that we need. Storybooks like The Kissing Hand, um, storybooks like The Invisible String. It's one of my favorites where they have these little rituals built into them about how we can conceptualize this and how we can use languaging around this. So there's lots of ways to stay connected even while you're apart. And then to build in lots of connection at the start of the day and lots of connection, particularly in that last hour leading up to sleepy time. Because that's another period where our kids are facing a long stretch of disconnect while they're sleeping. Even if they sleep in the same bed as you, the act of sleeping disconnects them from you. And some kids are very impacted by that. And so you want to give them a top up before that all happens. So if we can stay more broadly focused on the idea of connection and just like chill it all out in the lead up to school in those first few weeks of school, that should ease a lot of those hiccups with navigating the start of a new year.
0: Oh, Dr. Vanessa, I love the idea of really slowing things down and focusing on that connection piece. And I'm guessing that it doesn't matter how old our children are, the connection is so important and finding ways, I guess, as they get older to connect in a way that works for them because it's going to look differently. So my children are young. I've got a two-year-old and four-year-old before they go to bed, we do fill the love tank where I give them like the big hug. I'm like, is it fill yet? Like, no, 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 this goes on forever. And then eventually it gets full and they just love it when the love tank is full. Like I'm guessing when they're 17 and 16, they may (laughs) not be as keen for me to fill their love tank. So is there different things people can do to build this connection?
1: Yeah, so we, you know, we always say as young children, play with them the way they like to play. And it's the same thing with our teens. You've got to meet them where they're at. What is it that they're into? What is it that they're down with? How can you talk their language and be interested in in what they're interested in and be kind of along for the ride with those things? And so, you know, one of my sons, we have a couple of um, favorite television shows that we like to watch. And so we sit down and do that together. Uh, Both of my boys, 14 and 17, are no delicate flowers. They're giant humans and they eat a lot of food. And so I know that food is always going to be a way for us to connect. My eldest son, I have learned that I, for him, uh, I need to show up for work as a mom, even if I'm not put to work, which means I make myself very available. I, one of the blessings of COVID for me is I've gone from being this mom who was like 50% of my life was lived on the road. To, be, I basically am home full time now. I work, of course, during the day, but I'm not traveling around the world like I was before. And so I'm around in the evenings and I'm around in the weekends. And I spend that time in my kitchen or in my living room that the kids have to pass through on their way for snacks or on their way for whatever it is. And I watch for, I literally watch for their foot. I was going to say their little foot, but it's not little anymore, Meg. This is my boy where my eldest wears size 15 men's. They're the giantest feet you've ever seen in your entire life. They don't even fit on one stair. So I watch for him to get a step onto the stairs. And the moment is on whenever there's a hesitation in the step. And then I'm like, ah, it's work time. And I'll just sit back and wait for it. And then the conversations happen and And we get to have that time. So you do show up in different ways. You're not playing trains and you're not roughhousing in the backyard and you're not doing those kinds of things, but you find your moment.
0: Oh, my heart's just gone to the fact that my boy's feet will be getting bigger. So i am just gone to this whole (laughs) idea of how much things change, life changes. I know I've taught junior students, preppies who are just so excited to see you and they're just so excited by life and the connection is just so easy and effortless you just literally have to show up and then when I'm working with seniors I have to take that first term to really get to know them to get them on side and to build this sense of connection and I think one of the most powerful things you've said is be present just be around You know, this is for our teachers and for our parents, you know, just being around in the corridor or out on duty or um, in the kitchen. And I love how you said go to work, but you may not be put to work. Like just to be around and present and then sharing that example of the hesitance on the step. And for you, that's that sign to be like, oh, there's something. He's thinking about telling me, not quite ready yet, but there's something. And for you to be like, yep, sit back, wait, it'll Present itself. I'll just keep being present and eventually he'll build up that courage and we'll have that conversation. I think that's so beautiful.
1: There's something about, I often talk about how we have to have our swagger on as big people. And there's something to my mind that's very swaggerful about just like being all knowing in that sense. I am thinking back as I say that to a, I had an adolescent client in my office this afternoon and I hadn't seen her in some time and she was sitting. And I, could, I, could, I was sort of intuitively reading, because I didn't know for sure, intuitively reading her body language and listening for what was not being said. And I just took a leap. And I said to her, you know, I feel like there's something in between all of the words that you've already spoken that you haven't yet said out loud. Do you want to talk about it? And you could just see the wall crumble down and the tears came. And it was that, that's what I mean by swagger. Like I called it and it was a risk. I took a risk. I didn't know for sure, but a risk that was well worth it. Because she could have said, "Now, don't be silly. Don't use that psychologist <laughs> woo-woo stuff on me or whatever, right? Uh, but she didn't. She was waiting for the invitation. And so step into your role as leaders, step into your role as mentors, Step into your role as teachers in that broader sense of the word, because our kids, even if they're walking around looking like, you know, hairy, smelly um, young men, they're still kids. Their brains are still so in flux and they're facing a lot of big picture issues, uh, particularly at this time in history, and they need us to show up. So get your swagger on when you show up.
0: I love it how you talk about swagger and I love it how you talk about the mountain and that the idea Mm. of some people fall down the mountain because they're just too soft and too gentle and there's no swagger. It is just all comfort. And and then the other side, when we fall down, we can be quite hard and probably borderline mean. So could you tell us a little bit about that because I have a feeling that either we have a natural tendency to be too soft or too hard. And so how we can oh, work yes. towards this swaggerful, kind part.
1: <laughs> so we talk a lot about, and I say we, because this is a concept that I've co-developed with my partner, David Loyce, um, both my life partner, but also uh, my partner in a lot of the courses and other work that I'm doing now. And we were, you know, observing between us, we have 50 years of experience working in this field, supporting parents. And so he's older than I am, obviously. <laughs> 50 years. It's a lot. We were observing that there really are kind of two categories amongst us as parents. There's those of us who uh, are what we refer to as jellyfish parents, where you function too big on the kind side of the mountain and you end up falling down that side and become jellyfish. And then there's those of us who are what we often refer to as the bully parents, where you're too big on the firm side, And you don't have enough kind side in you. And so you fall down um, the firm side and you turn into a bully. The key is that you actually want to maintain a balance of being both firm and kind at the same time within one person. So there's no good cop, bad cop. There's no mommy's the softy and daddy's the mean one or the other way around that within mom, she has firm and kind equally balanced, and with another parent, be it dad or whoever, that they have firm and kind, equally balanced. And when we can show up in that way, our kids are like, okay, the grownups have got it going on. Okay. Now, what happens is when we're children, because of the way we experience our parents, we onboard a script for how to parent. And you can look me in the eyes and swear up and down that you did not do that, that you really thought this through, that you were going to do it differently. And I'm going to tell you as Dr. Vanessa Lapointe that you are a liar. (laughs) Because, you know, like I was trained as a psychologist before I had children. And I was like, oh, I've got this. Like, I'm going to be amazing at this. And then I had my boys and I was like, why is my mother coming out my mouth? Like, how is this happening? I said I wasn't going to do this. Right. And so it's just how it's just how we're wired up and it's our programming. And that's how we end up either being jellyfish or bullies. Now, incidentally, if you happen to be a jellyfisher, chances are you have partnered with a bully to have children with. And if you're a bully, you usually choose a jellyfish. It's just how it goes. Every now and then I, I work with a family that's two jellyfish parents or two bully parents, but very rarely. Um, We usually seek out the opposite because the, I don't know if you know this, but the purpose of all relationship is transformation and growth, not happiness. (laughs) So we partner with who we partner with because they're meant to challenge us, right? So that we can grow and become the best version of ourselves. And hopefully you get to experience some happiness along the way. Um, So yes, we will parent as we were parented. Our default side of the mountain always harks back to how it was that we were raised as children. Just because you have a default um, side of the mountain, it does not mean that that is a life sentence. You can really work to become conscious of the programs that run your existence on that side of the mountain and how to rewrite those programs. So you can find yourself at the top, full of swagger, being firm and kind at the same time.
0: I love that idea that you can be full of swagger and be kind at the same time because I think mm-hmm. some people run these stories that are quite binary, like, oh, that's too mean, that's too harsh and and I, I just smile at the idea that there are a lot of relationships where one's saying you just let them get away with everything, like you just got to let them get away with it, <laughs> like you've got to, like, drop it like it's hot, like you've got to, like, get those kids sorted and then the other one, like, oh, can't you see they're upset? Like, we've got to really feel their feelings. And and I can just see how there'll be households all around the world that are having that conversation. And then to be able to meet in this middle for ourselves mm-hmm. and our young people and to give them an example that we can be fun and we can be firm and we can be fair. Like, we can be all of these things and at different times we need to bring different things. So... It's almost like the way that we can work around all of this challenge of moving back to school and separation anxiety, all the things, is noticing ourselves, noticing our young people, and then noticing that relationship of the two, that third eyeball, (laughs) the Dr. Vanessa eyeball.
1: (laughs) That's right. And, you know, connection will be our guide at every step along the way and grow you to grow them. There always is going to be a focus on us as well as our children in the intimate space of parent-child or even teacher-student relationship. It's about human beings and hearts and minds and souls and brains and all of us in flux and growing and developing and evolving and transforming and trying to find our way. And so when we can have that as the foundation of that, the complexity and that layered process, um, we're sure to come out with our feet on the ground.
0: Oh, I just love so much of what you've said. And I've just learned so, so much. Every time we talk, I learn so much. And I also feel such comfort in I'm doing okay. parent yeah. as an educator, I'm doing okay. We don't have to be perfect. We're just doing the best we can with what we've
1: got day by day. Simply good enough. Good enough is everything.
0: Beautiful. So to wrap this beautiful conversation up, Dr. Vanessa, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up
1: for it? I'm up for it. Let's do it.
0: I am inspired by? Nature. Um, When life feels hard?
1: I go inside because happiness is an inside job.
0: An underrated skill is? Stillness. And I am really
1: underrated for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is hard and it is a skill. You got it. And I am looking forward to.
1: I am looking forward to continuing to grow and witnessing the ripple effects of that in my family, both immediate and extended.
0: Oh, that is so beautiful to think about as we change ourselves, we create a ripple effect within our systems. Like that's kind of like compound interest. Like that's really cool.
1: It's really, really cool. And there's a beautiful quote, which I don't have at the ready, but it's something along the lines of that dysfunction in our families is like a fire that rolls down from generation to generation until somebody is Strong enough to turn and face the flames, and that somebody heals not only themselves, but also their ancestors and spares all the children who follow. I'm here for it.
0: Dr. Vanessa, thank you for showing up. Thank you for turning and facing that fire for all of us so we can constantly Mm -hmm. learn from you and as you learn and grow. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today on the Wellbeing Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on and thank you for what it is that you're doing to shine light out in our world.
0: How fabulous is Dr. Vanessa? I really admire her commitment and passion for childhood development. Every time I talk with Dr. Vanessa, I feel so comforted because Dr. Vanessa knows how hard this work is. She works with young people. She's a mum of two. She works in school. She works with families all the time and really understands all the challenge, all the nuances. To learn more about Dr. Vanessa's incredible work in the world, visit www.vanessalapointe.com where you can sign up for her newsletter, learn about her online program, Discipline Without Damage. And if you're not following Dr. Vanessa on Instagram Follow Dr Vanessa on Instagram. I have learned so much from her posts. Before you go, I would like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. Number one, from this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? And number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well-being? Reach out. I would love to hear from you. What are you learning from these conversations? You can connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. To keep in the loop with everything that I'm working on and everything that I am loving, subscribe to my Thought of the Week email. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. Every time you share, that creates a ripple effect of hope and well-being. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing well-being education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.